Welcome to It Just So Happened. I am Richard Paulson, stand-up comedian and rather unprofessional historian. In this show recorded for the It Just So Happened podcast, we will explore some of the historical people associated with and events which happened on this very day in history, which is the 5th of June. That's before we delve into some of the history of the place where today's show is taking place. So, where are we? It was the location of Britain's first casino, and we're by the sea, in the place with Britain's first naturist beach. Maybe the first gamblers lost more than their shirts. <laughs> it also has the oldest seafront bandstand in the country, and a sea life centre which started out as an aquarium back in 1872, making it the oldest in the world, with a pier which is over 1,760 feet long, containing over 85 miles of planking. Yes, of course, it's Brighton! And Hove. You always have to say Brighton and Hove. Incidentally, Brighton's Palace Pier had 4.65 million visitors in 2016, making it the most visited tourist attraction outside of London. We're performing the show in the Brighton Fringe, the largest arts festival in England, and at 31 days, possibly the longest as well. We'll be feeling that. Yes, its roots go back to the 1960s. And our venue this afternoon is the Brighton Toy and Model Museum, housed in a set of four Victorian cellars under Brighton's main train station. It's one of the world's great toy museums. Its displays draw on guest collections and a core collection of over 10,000 items. And we have an audience in the museum with us today. As 8 million people visit Brighton every year, we welcome 1 millionth of that number into the museum. And talking of all things vintage, let me now introduce today's panel. Please welcome Dave Chawner, <laughs> Dave Gebbies, and Richie Rounds. Dave Chawner is a number one best-selling author, award-winning stand-up comedian, presenter and mental health campaigner. He's been on the BBC, ITV, Channel 4, Radios 1, 4 and 5 Live. The Mail on Sunday has called him hilariously entertaining, no pressure. His latest show, Underdog, is all about dogs, defeat and determination. And the audience here can catch the, the last performance of the show at this year's Fringe at the Quadrant at 19.15 this evening. That's if it's not already sold out. Absolutely not. Uh, <laughs> there are loads of tickets. <laughs> OK. Uh, sorry to hear that. <laughs> uh, but that means you can go if you want to. So, and Jade Gebby is a London-based comedian who was a semi-finalist in the Comedian New Act competition 2020 and regularly writes for shows on BBC Radio 4. Jade revels in taking hilarious swipes at people's expectations and producing a metaphorical eye roll at society and herself. Now, I believe you know a thing or two about podcasts yourself. Yeah, I studied radio production at uni, so uh, that was a lot better reaction than when I told my parents what I was going to study. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I've done a lot of podcasts in the past and doing one actually at the moment, so... Uh, if anyone wants to look it up, it's called Comedy Convictions, and we talk about comedy, basically. Thank you. And Richie Rams is a comedian and writer whose jokes and voice have also appeared on Radio 4 and 4 Extra and BBC Scotland. When it comes to historical facts, he also hosts pub quizzes across the South East. So, do you have a favourite pub question, Richie? Uh, yes, my favourite ever pub quiz question I've thrown every now and then is, uh, 
<clears throat> True or false? What was the name of Spandau Ballet's only UK number one hit? <laughs> uh, you have to think about that one. <laughs> or if I'm feeling very cruel, I'll throw in an essay question when they're not expecting it. So I'll just go through the normal questions. And it'll be like, question two. The likability of Gandalf the Grey contributed to the moral decline of the British government. Discuss. <laughs> and time's up on to question three. <laughs> Thank you. So now uh, back to you, Dave, please, for your first On This Day piece. So on this day in 1956, Elvis Presley performed Hound Dog for the first time, which was his uh, best-selling song, selling... Uh, anyone, anyone want to guess how many, how many copies it sold? More than seven. More than seven. Less than a billion. It is. Uh, it was ten million wow. copies. Uh, and that was also a shameless plug because uh, I'm doing a show at the moment all about how I think dogs are better than humans. So, as I say, lots of tickets free for that. If you want to come at seven fifteen, and welcome, you lovely people, come in. No, no, that, that was it. That was it from me. Is that? Like, do you want me to go on more? Do you know any more about it? Um, I like it. Um, I think apparently that performance was what gave his name uh, Elvis the pelvis because that was like it was quite sort of uh, weird for people on TV to have hip bones because at that point in time they were just <laughs> people, uh, and everyone was like, "What's this guy? He's got these extra bones." Um, so that that was he was he was the first uh, biped to have a pelvis on television as well. So I mean, mental, isn't it? Oh, amazing, thank you. Now on to my first On This Day segue piece. So, what famous train departed Paris for the first time on the 5th of June, 1883? Was it the Orient Express? It was the Orient Express, oh. yes. Oh. Or strictly speaking, it was the Express d'Orient, as the train was only officially renamed the Orient Express eight years later. Mm. It left Paris. Uh, so, what was its uh, original destination? Is my next question. The Orient? <laughs> oh. I don't really know where that is. Like, it's one of those terms that like, I've yeah. heard, but I don't, I don't really know what it is. Yeah. Like, oh, so I'm kicking myself because I considered this as one of the subjects, and nope, I wiped out all of that information as soon as I get up on it. Oh, was it something like Istanbul? Oh. So, well, its original destination was Vienna. Yeah. Oh. But was it a replacement bus service? Well, and it actually went via. Yeah, I think Germany. it was more reliable then than it is now. So, yes. <laughs> It remained the terminus until October 1883, and then my next question was, what was the furthest destination of the Express after that? So, you've already said it. Oh, Istanbul. Istanbul. Or as it was then known... <laughs> Constantinople. Constantinople, that's yeah. right, yeah. Now, how long did the journey take from Paris to Istanbul, do you think? Too long. Yeah. Like a replacement bus service. Yeah. 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 Well, it was a sleeper train, wasn't it? So, it was weeks, wasn't it? Surely not. Well, if so, obviously a murder happened on that train. <laughs> long, long enough for a murder. <laughs> I mean, that's all my knowledge of the Orient Express is purely just that book. So um, I guess it would have to be overnight because <laughs> murders don't happen just in a day. Um, no, well, they, they, they slept on the, on the you, train. You haven't so. been to the same parts of London I have. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, I'll give you the answer. It was 67 and a half hours. So it's almost three whole days. So oh, wow. long enough for quite a few murders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was that was a genuine murder? I thought I'd oh, no, oh, no, okay. <laughs> I'm also very gullible, so this <laughs> is gonna be a great show. Well, we don't know, we don't know. I'll cover that in a moment. So it ran via Strasbourg, Munich, Vienna, Budapest and Bucharest. 
and it had ferries across the Danube into Bulgaria and along the Black Sea to Constantinople or across the Straits of Bosphorus. Uh, now, the Orient Express, it's quite complicated. It originally had three routes. So there was the Orient Express, then there was the Simplon Orient Express, which ran via Milan, Venice and Trieste. And then there was the Arlberg Orient Express, which ran via Zurich and Innsbruck to Budapest. The services were halted during two world wars and the Arlberg leg to Athens remained closed after the end of the war because the border was closed between Yugoslavia and the Kingdom of Greece and then between Bulgaria and Turkey up until 1952. Now a journey on the Orient Express was billed as a luxurious experience, for example with four course meals, but how was the temperature regulated in the carriages and how did passengers get to wash? I actually think it would be weirder if we knew those really <laughs> answers. <laughs> well, I actually know how the temperature was regulated on the Orient Express, so... Improvise, improvise. I say, it's old school trains, that they regulate the temperature by virtue of windows? Yeah. <laughs> Basically, that's it, you had to open a window. Uh, if you wanted to cool down, there was a fan, or you expected to open a window. But uh, if you were too cold, there were cold stoves on board which fed radiators in each carriage. And in terms of bathing facilities, on this luxurious train for I, three I days? Guess, sure, if it was me, I'd collect rainwater on the way and then, like, <laughs> heat, heat it up. Is that what's in your suitcase? Yeah, yeah that's <laughs> what, like, I, I, think, I think I just come across badly now. <laughs> sure, like, looking at me going, like, he's not on the show, he's just homeless. Well, uh, I was thinking, Ray, I was thinking, like, open a window and just stick your arm out. Yeah, Wash your hands, yeah. <laughs> also, I love how you're both relying on the fact it has to be raining in order to get clean. Yeah, well, yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. true. Uh, so basically there were no bathing or showering facilities on board, just wash basins and toilets mm. on this luxurious train. So there you go. If you were travelling from Istanbul as far as Trieste, which is uh, kind of Italy way, there were only sleeping cars with ten compartments, each containing two beds. And during the daytime these would convert into a compact carpeted sitting room with a sofa and small table. So... I've already given you hints about this, but how did passengers travel between France and England? Uh, was it was it ferry? Mm -hmm. How else could you have done it at the time? There was no there was no tunnel. So again, uh, a bit like uh, in the Turkey stretch, you'd have a ferry between Calais and Dover. So you'd leave the sleeping cars and board the ferry. So it's not quite sounding as luxurious as it seemed <laughs> to be when I first started researching this. So onto the the murder bit. So yeah, which Agatha Christie novel? features the train. Nice, easy answer. <laughs> Death on the Nile. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when was Murder on the Orient Express writ um, written or authored? Um, maybe like the early 50s? Uh, it was earlier. Oh. earlier uh, the, the late 40s? Earlier. <laughs> the early 40s? Earlier. <laughs> so I thought you were out of misery. It's tricky because she wrote yeah. Prior for her entire life, didn't she? So yeah. Pretty much, he was one of the first. I, I rem I'm, I'm a Christie fan, not enough to know the answer to his question, so I'm sidelining to hope that no one notices that. But uh, he was, I think, the first Poirot novel was one of the first ones she wrote, and she kept writing him all through her life. She wrote The Curtain, which is his final level one, years before she finished writing it. So I think she was writing Poirot up until she died from when she first started writing it. So it was 1934. Um, but it's not actually set on the Orient Express but on the Simplon Orient Express. So as I said, there were three different versions of the train. And the Salon Pullman car in the story wouldn't have actually formed part of the train, so it was only there for dramatic effect. 
I bet you're a hoot to watch James Bond's with. Don't do that. Come and see my comedy show. Which James Bond movie features the Tommy? Oh, the second one. Sphincter and like the the Spectre? From Rush of Blood? From Rush of Blood, yeah. I hope you're not reading my screen. Yes, which is 1957. The final question on this which soap opera characters? Spend their honeymoon on the Orient Express. You know this before. Harold and Mad Fisher. Uh, it was uh, Den and Angie Watson EastEnders, apparently. Oh, Dirty Den. Well, that's because they had no washing facility. Okay, so that's enough for that one. So it's over to you now, Jade, for your on this day, please. Thank okay, you. perfect. So uh, on this day uh, in 1915, I've got a few cue cards because there's a few dates. On this day in 1915, a country gave the women the right to vote. Uh, it wasn't the UK because we still had to wait a bit longer, but it was Denmark. Um, so Denmark gave the women the right to vote on this day, um, which was less than 110 years ago. So it sounds good, but it wasn't that good really because it was quite recently. Um, but obviously that got me thinking, okay, Denmark must be quite a, well, in the 1915, it was like quite a forward-thinking country. But then apparently, in 2019, there was a vote, and Denmark was voted, or they found out, well, not a vote, a poll, uh, and they found which the women could vote in, um, but there was a poll, and apparently Denmark is now one of the least feminist countries in the developed world. I was thinking about this, I was like, ah, maybe we shouldn't have got the vote. <laughs> Um, but uh, I was also thinking that um, obviously as a country, they I don't know if anyone been to Denmark. No. Yeah. Well, they have basically they have a statue of the Little Mermaid there. So I was thinking it's never going to be like the feminist blueprint because they have a statue there of someone who literally allowed her voice to be taken away just so that she might get laid with the prince. So, <laughs> um, and actually, I was thinking it's. Kind of ironic because nowadays, obviously, that does happen, but the prince asks his mum and the taxpayer for quite a lot of money to take away the voice. But anyway, um, when I was looking this up, I was looking at lots of different countries, obviously, Denmark giving women the right to vote, sort of my into this day. I was looking at other like countries and nations, and I don't know if anyone knows this, I know it's a podcast, but if you do, shout it out. But um, one of the first nations, not countries, but nations, to give women the right to vote was, ironically, the Isle of Man. The Isle of Man. It was so that they could vote in a referendum. Wow. But I did just find it quite ironic that obviously the Isle of Man gave us the right to vote. Um, in the UK as a country, it was 1928. Um, so, but 10 years before that, Women could vote, but they had to be over 50, no, over 30, have a uni degree, and own property. And I was thinking, I'm quite glad, I don't know about anyone else, but I'm glad that has changed because I would not be able to vote. Like, imagine being 30 and owning property. I don't know if it's possible, but um, yes, yeah, so I'm glad that they changed that. Um, and then, oh yeah, so obviously, so the reason I brought, wanted to talk about this is because I feel like even though that was like 110 years ago, things haven't progressed that far for, in a lot of things. Obviously, like at the moment, there's a lot all over the world, there's a lot of um, decision making about women's bodies and 
been made. Um, and I was thinking I was quite annoyed about this because the other day I went and I was out and some guy was just like telling me how I should wear my hair. I thought, oh, that's not cool. I mean, in his defense, he was my hairdresser, but <laughs> did the suffragettes die for nothing? <laughs> um, but yeah, so I um, obviously as well, like in um, America, at the moment, Roe versus Wade has come up and um, America, obviously well known for their treatment of women and of uh, anyone who's not a um, straight white man, but um, I, yeah, I, I mean, I don't have a joke about Roe versus Wade because it just makes me annoyed, but I wanted to mention it, um, just because it's weird to me how long ago the votes have, we got the vote and still these things being decided for us. But I was thinking about kids and I was thinking that my one thing is I think before anyone has a kid, they should prove that they can change a double duvet. It's just the way I see it is if you can't change a double duvet, you can't change a nappy. So um, that's basically my Roe versus Wade. Can you change a duvet? Well, why double duvet? Because it's much harder. Because with the single duvet, you can see you can sit like you can see what's the short end and what's the long end. With the double duvet, they're very similar, but they're slightly different. But I just think if you're a single parent, I feel stigmatized. That's true, but. Get your, get your kid a double bed. Right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> double beds for children. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Look, I have to say as a parent, I really wish that double DOVs were as easy to change as nappies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. I've never changed a nappy, so I don't know. But I equate a duvet and a nappy to, together. Um, but yeah, so basically I wanted to bring that up. Um, I wanted to talk about the votes for women. The last thing I wanted to say as well is, obviously, obviously I brought it up because of Denmark, but um, the first country that gave, like the whole country that gave the women the right to vote was New Zealand, which was 1893. Um, and I just wanted to bring that up because I'm half New Zealand, so I just wanted to say, I'm just going to show off, basically. <laughs> My ancestors are better than yours. No, no. Um, but they were. They uh, gave women the right to vote 30 years before uh, the UK. So good on New Zealand. And yeah, that's what I wanted to talk about. How to get your British audience on the side. Yes, exactly. <laughs> my uh, sort of Duvo is my favourite song. It's uh, Duvo Now It's Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> Any opportunities to throw them? Thank you very much, Jake. So. so, the 40th President of the United States, Ronald Reagan, died on this day in 2004. He was president between 1981 and 1989. Probably his most famous quote was when, during the second presidential debate in October 1984, he successfully made light of concerns about his age by saying, I want you to know that also I will not make age an issue of this campaign. I'm not going to exploit for political purposes my opponent's youth and inexperience. <laughs> so, who was his opponent in 1984? Joe Biden. No, I know the point, but I can't remember the opponent. No one remembers the losers, you see. So. Uh, yeah. No, I genuinely don't care. Like, I think they... Like, <laughs> <laughs> can you care for the podcast? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I honestly think with voting and stuff, I think the problem with the political system is people like me can vote. I actually, I actually think fewer people should be able to vote rather than more. Like, like I, I, I'm not, I don't, I, I don't understand politics. Like, Reagan, I, I don't really know, I think, I only know until he was a movie star, wasn't he? 
I'd say true because they were all dirty back then. I bet that's how he met her, like she was just a runner and he like sexually assaulted her or something. <laughs> Interesting theories. Yeah. Very good then. Um, I, I, yeah, I reckon that. I reckon true. Yeah, I think so. I think. And also one has to be false, yeah. And you're not gonna you're not gonna start with a false by saying that, so I'm gonna say definitely. <laughs> yeah, so yes, she was. In the nineteen fifty seven film Hellcats of the Navy. It featured both Ronald Reagan and Nancy under her screen name of Nancy Davis. So here are two more quotes from Ronald Reagan. I've left orders to be awakened at any time in case of national emergency, even if I'm in a cabinet meeting. <laughs> Thomas Jefferson once said, we should never judge a president by his age, only by his words. And ever since he told me that, I've stopped looking. <laughs> Reagan was a, a very good one for a quote, and he used to love telling Soviet jokes. But he was always very careful about the uh, visibility, but he always prefaced saying, these are jokes that have been told to me by people in the Soviet Union, and they're the jokes they tell about each other, and always said that at the beginning, so it didn't look like he was taking it out of it. And uh, he, there's, there's loads of videos of him doing it. One of the best ones was the, uh, the man who um, wanted to buy a new car, and he saved up all the money to buy a new car. So he contacts the people who sold the car and says, I've got the money, here's the money, I'd like my new car. So it's okay. Uh, the car will be delivered in a year's time. I says, okay, uh, will it be delivered in the morning or the afternoon? <laughs> what, what does that matter? So what well, gas man's going to be in the morning. <laughs> yeah, the voice He was really good friends with uh, uh, Maggie Thatcher, wasn't he? I never like really good pals. Yeah, so I guess he keeps bad. Yeah. Well, um, so that was my second segue, uh, and, and that was back to you, Richard DeWolf, on this day, please, thank you. Right, well, on this day, in 1963, Brigadier John Profumo resigns as an MP and a Secretary of State. Now this marks the last time the Tory MP has ever 
line talking to the conductor. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sorry, that, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> uh, sorry, this marks the last time that the Tory MP has ever resigned for lying or committing a lie. <laughs> uh, the story starts two years earlier. A Refumo met Christine Healer at Cliveden. Uh, Cliveden is the family home of Lord Astor, and Cliveden was known for its fantastic views. Or, if you prefer, it's Asta La Vistas. Keel <laughs> uh, Profumo met at a pool party of one of Asta's more bohemian tenants, and Profumo was instantly smitten with her. Well, nobody knows what it was about Keel that caught his eye. Could be her youth, or her exuberance, or possibly the fact that she was star-cast naked at the time. Um, Profumo didn't proposition Keeler immediately at this point. He was a man of class and breeding, and he waited for his wife to leave the room first. <laughs> um, and they started very quickly an affair that started and ran its course and ended relatively quickly and actively, which stayed a secret for over a year. Uh, but then Keel was approached by newspaper publishers that convinced her that she'd make a small fortune selling a story. And it started this huge PR scandal. See, this was arguably one of the first political sort of scandals of this nature. Before this point, it was generally understood that you did not talk about the private lives of MPs. You talked about what they did in their house, you talked about their works, what they did behind closed doors were secret. And this is where suddenly that crowbar was put in, and you looked at the lives of these people, and it created this massive interest, this massive story. Now, Keel was very quickly overwhelmed by this publicity, and various other things going on as well that we do not have the time to talk about. Um, so she skipped the country to go into hiding for a little bit to escape from it inadvertently creating a rumour that Profumo would have her disappeared as this scandal was happening. Now this led to Profumo having to stand up and deliver a speech in the house, talking about the fact that acknowledging that he knew Keeler and saying that they, he hadn't had anything to do with his appearance, which was true, but saying one key lie, saying that they had not had an affair. Now that lie, that single lie, he was caught on, and that is what ended his career. The, the affair, all of that, wasn't it. It was the fact he lied in the house that caused him to resign. Um, and for a few moments from there, Buckpot was a broken man, left with nothing apart from his beautiful movie star wife, his massive list of uh, political connections, and his huge personal fortune. <laughs> uh, now, why I love this story, and the key thing about looking at history is looking at current events through that lens. Now let's look at the difference that 60 years makes to political intrigue by looking at the current political scandal of Partygate. Partygate, effectively the political equivalent of someone climbing a ladder, putting up a sign saying do not die, and then jumping off the ladder into the shallow end. Profumo cared about how the public viewed him, and the government at the time put a huge amount of effort into covering it up. If you look at all the behind the door things that happened to try and prevent this scandal from out, it is better than the best 1960s spy thriller. Johnson's attempt to cover a party gate is less Harry Palmer and more Mr. Bean. <laughs> he doesn't care enough about us, or is not confident enough, to arrange a cover-up of something that happened where only him and people who worked with him were in the room, and the only thing he needed to do to keep it a secret was them to not talk about it, not text about it, and not take photos, and they failed in that. <laughs> And the big difference is looking at how people reacted after that. When Profumo was caught out on one line, he immediately resigned from public service, and he literally spent the rest of his life 
volunteering and working for charity to make amends. When Johnson was caught in the Partygate scandal, uh, his response was to say that all the hurt and anger he caused just proved that he had a greater obligation to stay in the job that he's wanted to do since he was five years old. The perfumer scandal caused a lot of bad things. Uh, Keelan was haunted by the story for the rest of her life. Uh, the Doctor Who introduced the two committed suicide during a court case against him that still today is considered by many to be a massive miscarriage of justice. And maybe the worst possible outcome is that it inspired an Andrew Lloyd Webber musical. <laughs> uh, it also inspired the 1989 film Scandal. Uh, at first, no actor wanted to be associated with the role of Profumo and the role of this womanizer. And in the end, Ian McKellen, who at this point in his life was so recently out of the closet he still smelled of mothballs, uh, thought that this would be the perfect opportunity for him to play this role. Now, the problem is, Ian McKellen played Profumo with all of his natural, sparkling, blue-eyed charm. And what he gave us was a lovable Profumo that people wanted to forgive. Because he's Ian McKellen. He loved him. And in this moment, he accidentally created the archetype of the forgivable bad boy politician that persists today. And that is how the likability of Gandalf the Grey is contributed to the moral decline of the British government. <laughs> We're coming now to the second half of the show, where we're going to cover some of the history of Brighton and Pope. Today, Mark, I'll say that the whole time I'm here, it's Brighton and <laughs> Today marks the end of the current monarch's platinum jubilee celebrations, and Brighton has its own historical associations with British monarchs, so we'll look into some of those. Question Which king stayed in Brighton in disguise? Burger King. <laughs> Possibly. George. Which one? <laughs> which it wasn't. You, which one do you want it to be? <laughs> no, that, it, it wasn't a George. No. Okay. It was Charles II. Charles II. Yeah, uh, yeah. yes. In sixteen fifty-one. So technically, he was then still only king of Scotland. It was two years after the execution of his father, Charles I. Charles II persuaded the Scots to invade England to help him get on the throne. However, the Scots were defeated by the parliamentarians at Worcester on the 3rd of September 1651, and the king narrowly escaped being captured. So he fled and had to adopt a disguise, first as a servant and then as an eloping lover, and was hidden by various royalist gentry. And there was a £1,000 reward for anyone willing to give away his whereabouts, which at the time was a lot of money. People want to hold up a fiver and go, you look like this guy. <laughs> 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 what does an eloping lover dress as? That's what I want to know. And then Yes, yes. He was six foot two, and he obviously had his affected mannerisms as royalty, so he was quite difficult to disguise when travelling with his companions. His penultimate stop on the journey to France was at Brighton Stone, now known as Brighton and Hope, <laughs> where he stayed one night. He stayed at the George Inn on what is now West Street. Years later, the inn changed its name to the King's Head. I'm being sensitive in light of what <laughs> uh, The King was uh, the King. No, the pub was demolished in the 1930s. 
Captain Bryce Helms phoned Charles Verstappen to shore him to the boat which would take him to France. The boat was called the Surprise, and it usually carried coal. But Captain Nicholas Tatterson had already agreed to take some unknown passengers to France for the sum of £80. But when he found out it was Charles who was being asked to take, he demanded an extra £200 in danger. Charles left Shoreham on the high tide at around 7am on the 15th of October, five hours after boarding, but only two hours before a troop of cavalry arrived in the town after a tip-off to arrest the king. So he made his way to Paris, stayed with his mother, Queen Henrietta Maria, and did not return to England for another nine years, two years after the death of Oliver Cromwell. So, some more questions to the panel, tell me what I'm talking. How did the George Inn in Bright Helms Stone Mark Charles's stay there every year. It's on West Street, is it? Mm. So, I mean, I think now West Street, that's like where all the bars and I'm looking at the, the young people in the bar. <laughs> <laughs> that's like where everyone goes clubbing and stuff, isn't it? And I, that's it, that's so it's, it, it's the traditional shouting at the window and throwing a kebab at it. Yeah, I was thinking, yeah, yeah, did they give him like a cocktail and a kebab or something like that? <laughs> <laughs> I, like, I like the thinking. Um, the owners hung a branch of oak through the top window. See, that's weird. What's that got to do with anything? That's my next question. What is the significance of oak? Oh, yeah. Didn't he hide in a tree? Yay! Yeah. Oh, is that the guy with King Teeth in Birmingham? Is that the guy that went up the, um... In Shropshire? Yeah, near Birmingham. Like, <laughs> in relation to the moon. <laughs> Apparently there's one. Uh, there was another tree. I mean, there were loads there of trees there. Thing. So, like, <laughs> I've seen Robin Hood. There were, like, proper loads of them. Yeah, so uh, Charles hid in an oak tree to escape from parliamentary soldiers hunting for him. When he was dressed as an eloping bloke, it was a possible house in Shropshire. The so called Royal Oak is in its grounds, so that's probably a good one. Um, it's believed to be a direct descendant of the original tree used by Charles. So, how would the Pendrills, the owners of Boscobel House, be ruled it? Charles being the king. I've been to Boscobel House, and the only thing I can remember is that it's got a really good gift shop. So I'm going to guess they were rewarded by loads of National Trust tax. Also, <laughs> <laughs> well, on the way out, he just stopped to shake their hand and say, "Oh, what do you do?" <laughs> <laughs> so when Charles II, as he became, came back from France, he rewarded mostly everyone who had sheltered him and helped him escape. And for the Pendrels, he gave them an annual pension in perpetuity, amongst several. And apparently, a number of descendants still receive money today. Oh, so, isn't that nice? But he's there. I could do some. What he's there? Yeah, so where did they get it from? Uh, I don't, well, I guess it's some legal thing. Or some probably, well, I guess we're probably paying it. Yeah, I guess it's from the Queen, which is from us. The, the, the one thing that I find really fascinating when it comes to the Charleses and Charles II, especially, is there is a perfect example there of how the language evolves connected to with the word cavalier. So you have the Civil War, you have the Cavaliers and the Roundheads. But you look at the word Cavalier and how it changed what is a really short space of time on the lines. So originally, the original word is the same as the French word Chevalier, which is their word for knight, and the word for cavalry, which was a, a horse-mounted soldier. Um, so there were uh, Cavaliers, the horse-mounted soldiers. It was then made into an insult by the Protestants who became the, the Roundheads as a, a term of abuse. It was reclaimed by the Catholics, so that the cavalier was a good thing. And at this point, it was just a political ideology. So it stopped being a word for soldier and started being a word for political ideology. It then evolved to also talking about the cavalier flu, 
him. So you look at the, the, the style of Charles II and the, uh, the long toppish hair and the, the clothes. And then Cavalier came the description of the clothing. Then it flipped again. You've got the uses of abuse again by the Protestants where they're talking about how the Catholics broke the non-aggression agreement. Uh, and then Cavalier became one of the modern uses we have right now with the Cavalier attitude, people who were uh, quite openly, openly not sticking to things quite late, like about promises and things like that. And there's all these evolutions, so we've got so many different definitions of the same word, many of whom we still use today, including breeds of dog. Yeah. And my, my parents have got two Cavalier Spaniels. We just sit around the house all day saying, oh, we may chase rabbits later if we fancy it. <laughs> 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 Thank you very much. Yeah, this is the difference between you and me. You bring all that, I just talk about Burger King and JD Sports. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know we're on a very different level with it. Is that like... Cavalier <laughs> attitude. <laughs> Hair. Was that why King Charles Cavalier was called a king? Because they've got big ears? I, I think also because he had one of those Cavaliers. Oh, imagine having oh, a... Oh, Spaniel, sorry. Yeah. It, it's weird because there's a King Charles Cavalier and there's King Charles Spaniel and a King oh, Charles Cavalier. It's very weird. But imagine like, having a breed. That would be like oh. the pinnacle of my life. It's just how a breed of dogs named after me. We shouldn't go on to dogs because you'll... you'll... That's much your show, isn't it? So, like, well, I'm going to talk about dogs all day. Let's bring it back to Dog Marley, have one named after them. So. so, why did visitors come to Brighton in the decades from the 1730s? What was the big attraction? Oh, to get some vitamin C. Um, so, yeah. well, did, they, did they know that there's a weird pub that always hands half a tree out of it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a bad uh, yeah, early visitors to Brighton came not for leisure or pleasure, but to aid their health and well-being. Seawater cures were popular by the 1730s, and Brighton's proximity to London made it a good alternative to spa towns such as Bath. Now, what did the doctors of the time recommend that visitors do when they came to Brighton? Well, they they, they bathed, didn't they? They sort of went in and had to splash out for a, a limited amount of time and then go back in. All with bizarre mechanisms. Well, that not been seen as like publicly indecent. Oh no, because they had these bathing huts that used to be concerts. Am I jumping ahead? I saw you now. Yeah, so that's that's the astonishing first. The Lewis-based doctor Richard Russell recommended that his patients visit Brighton to swim in the sea and to drink the water. Of course he did. He was based in Lewis. I want someone based in Scunthorpe saying that. He's got vested interests. So other physicians offered similar advice, but prompted an influx of wealthy visitors to the town. Dr. Russell had a house built on the seafront on the site of what is now the Royal Albion Hotel in 1753 and moved his practice there. Now mixed bathing, where men and women uh, swam alongside each other, was discouraged. There were separate beaches for men and for women. So when do you think mixed bathing was finally allowed in Brighton? Uh, so what, so um Presumably at some point before the nudist beach opened. Yeah. <laughs> well, they could have had just two separate nudist beaches. <laughs> you were like, uh, <laughs> Why do you say that? Because uh, I know that they had the separate ones, and I think it's sort of uh, east of the new pier is roughly where the women's bathing area was, and close to the um, sort of the main streets is where the men's bathing and they, they had completely separate areas, so they go into the sea, so they couldn't see each other before they left it all mixed. And a lot of the men, there was no rule saying they couldn't bathe nude, so some of them, I think it was a lot of the men would swim nude, 
the wood and wooden, but when it rolls, it's just modesty because they are separate and these, these, like, these hoppings. I will never understand that, like with nude species and stuff. What's the benefit? What's the difference between like being nude and, and just chuck off on a little speedo? Like, I, I don't see what, like, what are you getting more out of that? Like, I'm never going to say, oh, I, know <laughs> I, I, just, I just don't see the point. It's like people, like, like people that bathe topless in the park. Men and women should both put on tops. Stop being stupid. Like, I don't, it just really annoys me. <laughs> I, I just, it annoys me. <laughs> I'm not even booked for this show. I just got angry Like this. 
To Brighton came he, came George the Third's son, to be bathed and received by famed Martha Jones. <laughs> There's that rhyme. So it's painted to Martha Gunn as well, holding a baby, that's said to be him. But he never actually went there as a baby at that age while she was a kid. That's fine, yeah. So, so that's that's we get the first one done or two. I thought I'd be spoiling all the dead. No, 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 that's fine. Uh, so, yes, no, it shows a bit of research. So, that hangs in the pavilion. Um, it's true, yeah, it must be made up because it just doesn't make sense. It, it's fake news, basically. Is there a pub called the Martha Guns as well? Yes, yes. Yeah. So, there is also one. Right, okay. It's a true or false time. Have any of the following been named after Martha Gunn? Okay, so a swimming pool, a pub, a bus, and a pop group. Oh, well, it's because of roses. So that's obviously. Martha Gunn specifically. Uh, swimming pool, pub, bus, or pop group. Well, so you yeah. mentioned the pub and I mentioned the bus. Yeah, so <laughs> I feel like there might have been a pop group. Yes! Oh god, yeah, there's a Brighton group, isn't there? There is. There is a, there's a Brighton group called Martigan, uh, which leads to the swimming pool. There is no swimming pool. It seems a shame to me. If anything, the naming the bus after me doesn't seem like kind of complimentary, but She managed to have eight children, as well as having a stroke. She didn't com completely retire until 1814 when she was in her late 80s and died in 1815. Her gravestone can be found in St. Nicholas's churchyard. So maybe there's something to be said about the health giving properties of St. Nicholas. But she, she was a dipper her whole life, didn't she? She, uh, she uh, for want of a better term, went into management. I think she made enough money as a dipper to start operating the bathing machines of her own. So she actually became a manager of. Uh, this, this is vague memory, something I read ages ago, but I'm sure because she's one of those. She, you know, she's a, a, another sort of good feminist story of someone who basically had the job of dunking people vigorously <laughs> in water and made enough money that to become her own boss and run oh, her own team. The classic feminist story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, that's cool that she almost became like the line manager of Duncan. <laughs> so why did the dippers and the bathers go out of business? Well, I'm assuming it's when mixed bathing was... Or when the sea was full of sewage and used bomber. Is it rising sea levels? So just be reasons that then it's like, oh, no need for it. Yeah, that's it. That's the answer. That's the answer. Someone just stood them one day and said, the water's right there. We could just walk. Is it because, like, the scientists said this is an absolutely idiotic idea? drinking the water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. a good idea. It's just the sea lads. So, uh, well, from my research, it was uh, things like Dr. I'm not sure how you say this, Dr. Awitz's baths, now demolished over the 1769. So they provided both hot and cold seawater, but indoors. So yeah. you didn't have to go out and expose yourself potentially to prying eyes, but you could sort of go indoors with, mm -hmm. uh, in a better environment, hot and cold indoor baths. So these opened mostly in the area of Pummel Valley, which is very good enough, with pipes coming in directly from the sea. Um, that's what year was that? Uh, well, that opened in 1769. So that was like a hundred years 
before the Orient Express that couldn't even fit shells. Yeah, he's got top hat. Seems like a bit of a slap in the face. Well, to be fair, that feels like it's just an inlet to see water and a fire. Yeah. But, uh, you obviously have never worked in marketing. <laughs> What what gets me about this story is it's uh it's, I do analysis stuff in my boring job days and it's the difference between correlation and causation. Mm-hmm. People say go down to the sea and dip in the water it will make you healthy. And people went to the sea and they dipped in the water it made them healthy. And it never occurred to anyone that what they were doing was leaving a London at that time had raw sewage <laughs> running through the streets and factories pumping out smoke. <laughs> And then going to the fresh air and not breathing in and wading through all of this stuff. Like, ah, the sea must be a magical cure. Yeah. I never thought about that. That's, that's interesting. Yeah. Right, so completely different now. Very good on our subject. When do you think the first Indian restaurants opened in England and it also had a heavy delivery service? Yeah, I was reading about this and um, I can't remember exactly when, but I was thinking like this guy who did it, he was like, the 19th century version of delivery, wasn't it? Like, it's, it's like so cool. Yeah, so what, guess the year then? Um, oh, well, it's nice to say like 18, 1820? Oh, very good, I'm impressed. 1810. Yeah, so wow. the first Indian restaurant with a takeaway service opened in 1810. It was called the Hindustani Coffee House in George Street near Portland Square in central London. It was a great connection The restaurant offered them another item, Stuka with grilled children's tobacco and Indian dishes, allowed by the greatest epicures to be unequal to any curries ever in England. It was opened by, uh, I should have researched how to say this, it was opened by... S- yeah, sh- uh, I think it's Shake. Shake. It's spelled Shake, Shake but he, he, he gave himself the title Shake, but I don't think it was a... Thank you. He was born in the city of Patna, then part of the um, Bengal presidency of British India, into a Bengal Muslim family. Uh, his father served in the East India Company's Bengal Army and died in battle when he was 11. So following that, he was taken under the wing of Captain Godfrey Evan Baker, who was an Anglo-Irish Protestant officer. And so they served in the army, but basically, to cut the long story short, they both resigned. Uh, Baker went back to Ireland and Mohammed went back with him. And went there with him. So very interesting sort of backstory, which I haven't really got time to go into all of it. But he ended up marrying a pretty Irish girl of respectable parentage called Joan Bailey. They had seven children. He then, he then went to London and opened up the Indian restaurant venture, which only lasted two years due to financial difficulties. But he was also then credited with introducing shampooing. Now, what was that? Uh, well, I think it was just effectively washing their soap, wasn't it? They, they have quite a lot of baths and steam baths, but you wouldn't actually have the, the, the massaging of the soap done until you introduced it, if I understood rightly. Yeah, it was, it was Indian massage. So he introduced that as, and it became trendy. Uh, so there's the Indian medicated vapour bath, a type of Turkish bath to cure many diseases and give full relief when everything is baked. What a bleak time to be alive. <laughs> now kids are getting excited about like Nintendo Switches and skateboards. It's like, have you tried this new thing? What, shampoo? Like, <laughs> be so bleak. He does sound like that he would have been the best husband material because he brought... It's, he was such a good husband, away. he did it twice. He was a bigamist. Oh, oh, okay. Well, then he was a great material. Giving out therapeutic massage and yes. Indian takeaway. And making a fantastic curry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty good. 
So, so the, the Bryson sorry, just because of time, mm -hmm. the, the Bryson connection is the uh, English family moved here in 1914 and opened the first commercial shampoo vapor master bath in England called Mohammed's Baths on the site which is now occupied by the Queen's Hotel. So this luxurious bathhouse offered therapeutic baths and shampoo and things of all. And his wife Jane did the same. She did the same too. The business was an immediate success. Indeed, Mohammed became known as Dr. Brighton. We can tell a couple of years ago it was the name of the bar just in the sequel. Uh, very, very quickly, what was notable about him as an author? Uh, he wrote in the correspondence, well, I can't remember what the school now, but he wrote as in it was a, a series of letters, wasn't it? A published series of letters, I suppose, to a book. So it's someone else published letters that he wrote about his poems. His style was that? Oh, yes. Well, 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 you say you didn't do the research. So, uh, from Latin for letter, letter epistles. It is from the Latin epistles. <laughs> yes, his 1794 book, The Travels of Dean Mohammed, was all about his time in Ireland and India as a camp follower around northeast India. He described military conflicts, some major cities, and his voyage to Britain when he arrived in Dartmouth. So, you know, it sounds like quite a read. So, he died in his early 90s. He Sorry, that was at 32 Grand Parade in Brighton. And he's also buried with Lady St. Nicholas's Church in Brighton, where his son Frederick is also interred. Uh, I'm conscious that time's almost gone. So I've just got one very random question at the end. Who were the Promets? Mm. No, I know this one. The Cranky's original names. <laughs> uh, it would be someone that, like, uh, is it an end of a peer, entertainer, someone from Nice. Anyone's got any ideas? They were ladies that um, like tour guides for visitors to buy stuff. Oh, they had special uniforms and they would parade up and down the seafront. Oh, like that trick that does the silent disco. Do you hire audiences that know more than we do? It's not unusual. <laughs> yes, during the 1950s. So they were described in one local paper as walking information bureau with sex appeal. So we are out of time. So I'd now I'd like to thank, first of all, the Brighton Fringe and the Brighton Soil Rock Museum for hosting us today. And I'd like to thank our guests, please. So give it up for our guests, Dave Chawner, Jane Gabriel, and Festival Fringe every day between the 5th and 13th of August, 1555, at the Space Venue at Surgeon's Hall on Nicholson Street. I've got one final on this day, as is traditional on the podcast, to see and share with you. So, this is the American author and screenwriter Ray Bradbury, who died 10 years ago today, on the 5th of June 2012. He wrote a short story set on the Orient Express called On the Orient North. But he's perhaps most famous as the author of Fahrenheit 451, written in the McCarthy era, books titled Lube to the Temperature of Which Paper Ignites. Bradbury said that the book was written not so much to reflect that era's concerns about censorship, but about the effects that mass media has upon literacy. In a 1993 Seattle Times interview, he said, You don't have to burn books to destroy a culture. 
just get people to stop reading it. So I'll end with an extract from a speech he gave to Brown University. If we listen to our intellect, we'd never have a love affair. We'd never have a friendship. We'd never go in business because we'd be cynical. It's going to go wrong. Or she's going to hurt me. Or I've had a couple of bad love affairs, so therefore, well, that's nonsense. You're going to miss life. You've got to jump off the cliff all the time and build your wings on the way down. And on that note, we must fly. Thank you. Aww.